What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Good Theology Podcast. So good to have you with us. Today's episode is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Dwell Bible. Did you know that the average adult checks their device 261 times over the course of a, not a week, not a month, but a day, 261 times a day on average for an adult. I'm sure it's even higher for a teen. So for better or worse, the front line of ministry is often now on the phone. And our sponsor, Dwell Bible, has built a church platform that equips pastors to help your congregation stay anchored in God's word with their popular audio Bible experiences. So if you're a pastor wondering if Dwell would be helpful for you for a discipleship tool, uh, they would like to offer you a free one-year subscription. You can get that by texting the word GOOD to 39383. Again, that's a free one-year subscription for yourself. Text the word GOOD to 39383. Give it a try. It really is an enriching, beautiful experience to listen to the scriptures. Highly encourage you to do it and to encourage people in your church to do it. Well, for today's episode, we're changing it up just a little bit. I had the privilege to sit down with my friend Landon McDonald uh, to do a segment on his own YouTube channel. And the title of the segment is called Desert Island Bible. If I were to be stranded on a desert island, what three Bible verses would I bring with me? I loved this conversation, and I know that it is going to be helpful and enriching for you. Please enjoy this conversation with Landon. God bless you guys. zero people and for the people watching in the future <laughs> which is literally people at this point who watch this welcome this is desert island bible which the idea is what verses would you take with you and i'm joined today by a newer friend to me and he uh, his name is jake sweatman and he sweet man up Jake Sweetman, <laughs> did I say it wrong? That's on. That's on newer friends. We are. Did I say it wrong? Sweet, not sweat. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Well, he has been a lot kinder <laughs> to me in that he learned how to say my name correctly, <laughs> and we connected through a mutual friend, David Campbell, who yep. is a theologian in Canada, who does a lot of content with Jake and Jake. A really cool church in Los Angeles called C3. And yep. he also leads a podcast and a network of content under this heading, Good Theology. And I linked Good Theology in the description box below. And I um, can genuinely say that I love the content that they're putting out. The stuff that he and David Campbell are doing is, um, it seems like it would be too highbrow theologically, so, but don't let that sway you. There is so much good content there, and I would encourage anyone who's watching this, no matter how new of a Christian you are, to go sub to that channel and watch some of this content. It is absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Jake, so much for joining me today. Man, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. This is what happens when you mostly text with people. You don't know how to say their name correctly. Right. I think we've talked in, in person twice. One time was to have you on our podcast, which was a hilarious experience because you came on and didn't, we didn't know each other. And yeah. 
kind of the role that I take on the podcast is I bring on people who are smarter than me and then I ask them questions. They say what they think and then I ask them questions about what they think. Okay. But I didn't really prep you for that. So you took my questions as disagreement. And so you were like, wait, you, you do not, you don't think this way, you know, in terms of uh, orthodoxy. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 I totally do. I'm just trying to pull out your own genius. And that's pretty oh much God. what I do with David Campbell every week as well. That is too kind. No, I, I, I was not actually feeling that. So I'm glad you brought that up. No, I, at that point, two people had asked me to do a podcast and I had been to the hospital like two times in the previous week for a stomach problem. And I am not, I'm an artist at heart and I'm not good at keeping appointments. And so I tried really hard to like not leave people hanging. And then after I did this and another one for a guy named David Baker in Canada, I was like, I should not have done this. Like I'm not in a good place physically or emotionally. <laughs> like I, I should not have been, I was in the ER like two days ago. This was not, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, whatever. So welcome. So glad that you can um, join me today. And I I, um, I have admired what you are doing. And it's, it was great to meet you last year in person at the Theos Conference. Are, are you guys able to go this year? Yeah, we'll be there again. We're going to try and bring a squad with us. Oh, fantastic. So we'll be hanging out there again and watching all of Gabe Finocchio's disciples swarm him with cigars at 2 a.m. <laughs> asking him Chesterton questions. <laughs> uh, yes indeed that's a good crew that's i think i uh i think i went to bed before all of that took place each night yeah someone fell into a painting and apparently it was like a five thousand dollar painting at the airbnb oh and i was my like gosh i was like who puts expensive a five thousand dollar painting in an airbnb in a in, in a house that absolutely only gets used for people who are partying it was real. It was a really big house, and so I would yes. assume that's what most people rented for. So maybe it was right. like bait, and they were, excuse me, they were trying to get someone to right fall yes. into it. An oh insurance claim was their aim. So we are. Thanks everybody for joining me. Um, give us a thumbs up. Share this if this series has been a blessing to you. And I'd encourage you to follow Good Theology. They are subscribed to them. They're in the description box below, and. We're going to talk about the Bible. Um, Jake and I first connected on uh, theological points, and we were texting back and forth about different theological points that I was trying to learn mm. at a similar time as him. And I, I like, I love his theological mind. And, and so I've been very curious, and I asked him not to tell me which uh, Bible verses he was going to choose. So I'm very eager to see. Um, let's hear your first verse. If you were trapped on a desert island and you could only bring three Bible verses, which one? Which one yeah. bring? So I understood the assignment literally. Uh, so yes. I went with Proverbs 21, 19. Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Too perfect. <laughs> That's so perfect. <laughs> that that honestly just came up at my Bible reading this morning. <laughs> and I was like, That's so good. And I hope I'm not the first one to make that joke on uh, on this series. Um, you are. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Because I don't remember yeah. that one. I remember the one that says it's, I think it, there's two of them because there's one that says like it's better to live in the corner of a house or something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or like in the high tower of your house than, than with the. Yes. So there's yes. that. Better to live in a desert than with a horrible <laughs> nagging wife. Uh, but my wife's not that way. So I'd, I'd want her to be on the desert with me. Like looking at your verse and you're thinking, 
okay, well, at least this is better than something. There's something out there that's worse than this. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I changed my mind. I would make my verse uh, the one about uh, the two becoming one flesh because that means that she gets to come with me. And so, yeah, <laughs> at least I have her. You are gaming the system. Okay, okay, okay. The system. Okay, so I, I picked these verses this morning, and I and I did take the assignment literally. So I thought to myself, if I was stranded on a desert island, uh, what would be the things that I would need to uh, regularly remind myself of and, and think about? So I did go with a proverb, Proverbs twelve eleven. It says, "Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense." So I chose that verse because I felt like I was going to need constant motivation to survive and to work the, the land, whatever this mysterious desert island is that I've been stranded on. Um, and uh, so I went with that one. But in all seriousness, I do really love that proverb. That proverb has stuck out to me for several years because I feel like it speaks to uh, a trap that we often fall into, whether in ministry or any other endeavor in life. Uh, and that endeavor is to go for the, uh, the, the quick satisfaction as opposed to the, uh, regular methodical work that actually brings out harvest. And I think what that, what that verse is saying is that the two, the two people, they're not going for different things. The one who works their land and the one who chases fantasies, they're both after the same outcome. It's just that only one of them achieves the outcome while the other one results in, in nothing. And I think we can find this a lot, certainly in ministry, where we, we try to emulate what other people are doing in order to achieve some kind of like quick fix, some quick win, as opposed to getting under the surface, tilling the ground, sowing seed, just doing the practice of ministry that actually produces fruitfulness in people's lives individually and also in the church corporately. So that's, that's a verse. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. There's a lot there. And I, I, I love what you brought out of it. Have you, let me ask you a question, Jake, have you um, had difficulty as a pastor or even before you were a pastor, just as a Christian, have you had difficulty assessing Proverbs as promises, Proverbs as principles, and how have you come to and understanding in the way that you teach that to people. Yeah. The way that I come at Proverbs is basically, you know, in God's common grace for all people, uh, a lot of the Proverbs are essentially how life will generally go if you practice this. It's not some guarantee, you know, like you might work your land and the weather sucked that year. So, yeah, so yeah. did your harvest then. Um, so it, it's not it's not saying this is going to be the outcome one hundred percent of the time, but it is saying uh, if you if you live this way, more often than not, this is going to be the kind of outcome that you experience. I think even uh, yeah. there's another proverb about how uh, righteousness leads to life, for example, and I think about that one. That, you know, this is a, a statement that's written in the context of fallen and corrupt creation and humanity. And so nobody's really righteous. Yeah. And yet, if we even attempt to live rightly, then that's going to produce particular kinds of outcomes in our life. And, and this is why, 
you know, even unbelievers prosper. This is why if you put certain principles in practice that are in accordance with how God has set up the world, it is going to produce particular kind of outcomes in your life. Uh, often, not always, but often. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really good point that you made about the righteousness because I have found some difficulty when people Jesus juke or reform New Testament juke some of the Old Testament things. Like just take Psalm 15 is the one that comes to mind. Who can ascend the hill mm -hmm. of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then they're like, right. no one has clean hands and a pure heart. And I have yeah. had trouble with that because what they're saying is theologically true as it pertains to people pre-Christian. But then after you become a Christian, of course we have clean hands and a pure heart. We have the righteousness of Christ. And I have had difficulty of people, it seems like kind of taking the weight out from under some of the Old Testament commands for righteousness. Have you... Have you noticed the same, or do you think I'm off on that, or what have you seen? No, I think you're spot on for sure. Um, I don't mind reading uh, New Testament truth and reality back into passages like Psalm 15. I think that, that to see those passages in light of the coming of Christ is uh, a good and responsible thing. It, you know, it has to be parsed through and, and thought through deeply. Um but when David wrote that, and I'm, I'm assuming that's a Psalm of David, uh, in in his mind, he's not he he's, he probably doesn't have the cross. You know, he's not thinking like justification by faith alone. Um, he's probably thinking more uh, confession, penitence, honesty before God, um, coming uh, in spirit and in truth, if you will, as opposed to coming in pretense and and uh, hypocrisy. And so yeah, wow. those same things are true when it comes to our relationship with Christ. We can't come to Christ in pretense or hypocrisy. We can only come uh, with the truth that we are sinners, that we need saving. David would have had that same recognition. It's just that his revelation of how God does the saving was not as developed as what we get to have uh, as people who are living post-passion. Uh, so, um, yeah, it just has to be thought through carefully. That's good teaching. That's really good teaching because it's neither dismissive of the New or Old Testament in the way that the New Testament and Old Testament are not dismissive of each other, although the New Testament is occasionally dismissive of the Old Testament in a way that undergirds it, which I recognize that anyone who's not a Christian would think that what I just said was idiocy, but it really is the, the paradoxical truth of that. Okay, so yeah, that was that was a great choice for number one. So we've, you, you've got one from the books of wisdom. Now, uh, let, yep. let's hear it. What's number two? Okay, so now I jumped over into uh, the New Testament and I'm going Ephesians chapter one versus, well, I picked, these next two ones are technically passages, but they're not single verses. So I hope that's not cheating too much. You know, I, I hardly give any guidelines. So I feel like if people <laughs> are not 100% in it, it's mostly a communication error. And... Some of them, it's on. Until the 1500s. Exactly. Like some of these paragraphs, all right. It's one thought. So uh, what'd you think? First okay. Yeah. yeah okay. Cool. So this one will pass for that. But um, uh, the next one, you know, probably I'm stretching <laughs> my, uh, okay. my allowance a bit. So this is uh, Ephesians 1 verses 22 and 23. So, and God placed all things under his feet, that is Christ's feet 
and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And I, I picked this passage again practically because I'm, if I'm all alone on a desert island, I want to be reminded of the fact that I, I belong to a, a, a concrete community called the church. And that even though I'm physically alone, like, like John, uh, I guess, on Patmos, uh, I'm still still connected to the bride of Christ. But this verse is uh, spe specifically verse 23. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Yes. So we know that Christ fills everything in every way in the sense that he's Lord, which is, you know, the context of this passage is what Jesus, uh, that's what Paul is talking about in regards to Christ. Um. He's Lord over all of creation, and he's Lord over the church here specifically. But the part that I've been hung up on is this notion that the church body is the fullness of him, is wow. the fullness of Christ. Wow. Oh. Yeah. So from what I understand, there's kind of two primary ways to understand that statement. And that can be to understand Paul is saying that the church is the contents as in the actual fullness of Christ, the church in some mysterious way fills up Christ. And we can talk about that. And the other way to understand it is that the church is the container. So that Christ is who fills up the church. And that that would be probably the more... Uh, uh, that would be our initial way, the, the safe way, let's say, to understand it. Of course, we'd be so comfortable saying that Christ fills up the church. That he is her all in all. But there is some good ground to go, well, maybe, maybe what Paul is saying is actually that it's the church who fills up Christ. And in my study of this, what I found out is that this is actually where John Calvin rested. Really? So he has this, yes, he has this stunning statement about how and I'll just paraphrase it, but essentially that Christ, Christ is not happy to call himself complete apart from the church. That in some way he reckons himself not totally whole apart from his bride. Yeah, wow. Oh, man, good teaching. And crazy thought. And I, I, I agree with you because I think the first uh, uh, way of looking at the passage that you reference is certainly an easier way of looking at it, uh, but it doesn't... And, a, and a true way. Right. It's true. Yes. And you can point to other places in the scripture where absolutely Christ is the fullness of the church, totally. And it reminds me of that passage, I think it's in Colossians 2 where it says to fill up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. That's and what it reminded me that, of as well. I, Yeah, I find that verse really intriguing because if you were to ask the average Christian what was lacking in Christ's affliction, they would say nothing. And if you mm -hmm. say there is something, then that is a heresy. And that is because they are unfamiliar with this passage. And I, I preached it for four years ago 
And I came to the conclusion that what was lacking in Christ's affliction was the affliction of his body, the church. Mm -hmm. And I obviously didn't like discover that. That's just from, you know, other wise Christians from the past. Mm -hmm. And there is a um, theological hesitancy to view the church as that level of holy as both of those passages indicate. And I, exactly. I sometimes don't understand why exactly that is. What do you think? I think that the, the church is as holy, uh, and this statement requires some unpacking, but I think that the church is as holy as Christ. Because 1 Corinthians one thirty, he is our sanctification. Yes. So Christ is the holiness of the church. Now we are, our, our sanctification is not to be confused with, with deification. We are not Christ. We are, we are distinct from Christ in the sense that we'll never be Jesus, but all of his holiness is attributed to us. We are like a man and a wife. We are one flesh. So a lot of Christians stop short of just how one, uh, the oneness of Christ and his church really is. John 17, I and them. And you, Father, in me. So that's what I'm the, the fullness of the Trinity through the Holy Spirit lives in the believer and more, more specifically lives in the church. So I, I don't have any hesitancy about that whatsoever. So I, I love John Calvin's interpretation of that. And it, rem, it reminds me, I, I read a book um, recently on the incarnation that that talks about this, which is where kind of like my mind started rabbit trailing about all this. But they, they talk about how uh, probably the best way to understand what it means for us to be made in the image of God is that God created us male and female. And so it's it's the the indivisibility, yet the distinctness of a man and his wife in marriage that best images the triune God. Because the triune God is both indivisible yet distinct. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all distinct persons in the Trinity, but they are indivisible from one another. And so before we think of imaging God as our consciousness or creative power, or as something functional like taking dominion, spreading Eden, at its most basic level, imaging God is the fact that we image him as male and female. Let us create uh, man in our own image, so he created them male and female. And so when I connect that back to this verse in Ephesians, what Jesus came to do in part is to recover our image bearing. He succeeded where Adam failed and where every faithless man and woman has failed after Adam. Jesus Christ succeeded in that. And so he recovered what it means to be a man. And part of that recovery and image bearing is the fact that he has his bride. So just as Adam and Eve image the triune God, so also does Christ in his recovery of that image bearing image, image the triune God in his human humanity by being joined to his bride, the church. That's really good teaching. That's really good teaching. Have you taught that in a sermon before? Not yet. And if I did, I, I would, I wouldn't be saying anything original. I'd be like you said, borrowing from other great thinkers. But even still, the way that you distilled that is a very effective way of communicating that. And it's very beautiful because we live in an age that is very anti-church, even amongst Christians, certainly anti-other churches. 
And it's funny that you brought up John 17. That's what I'm preaching on this weekend is uh, mm -hmm. prayers for unity and John 17, Psalm 133, and the idea that Christians should be praying for the other churches in their city mm -hmm. is the idea. Mm -hmm. And I was working with my team before um, our uh, video chat right now on, we're going to have like a Google street view on the screen of where you are when you drive past the other churches and talk about praying for them. That's so cool. And there is something really, there's something there in what you're talking about, which is like the bride, the bride loves all of her dress. That's why she chose it. And all the parts are not the same. And the, you know, just a very obvious illustration of that. And I really, um, yeah, you've really stirred me. You've got, you've got, think, the, you've got me on the rabbit trail now. The, the church had a saying, uh, no salvation outside the church. And Protestants, you know, we kind of turn our nose up at that because it, it sounds like salvation is all of a sudden merit-based. But when you understand who the church is in that I can't be in Christ and not in his church because Christ is in his church, then we should be very comfortable to affirm a statement like that, no salvation outside the church. Uh, Psalm 133 yeah. even says it, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity for there the Lord commands the blessing life forevermore. So life only exists in unity. In fact, all of God's creation of life flows out of his unified life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's only in his triunity, his holy life, that creation of creation happens. How can we expect to take up that mission with God in the, uh, the, the promulgating of life apart from sharing in that unity? And there is no other unity apart from the unity of God. Yes. Apart from God, unity doesn't exist. Unity originates in God, just like love originates in God. And apart from God, love does not exist. If we want true unity, then it's only unity that we have in Him. And if you're in Him and I'm in Him, that's the church. And I can't be in Him and not be in you. Wow. And that's so true because anything else that we are unified with on earth is temporary, but God's unity is eternal. Wow. Which is eternal life. We often think of eternal life as something amorphous and ambiguous. But eternal life, before it is a place, is a person, and it is the person of the triune God. Yes, and we are in it now. Because mm -hmm. we're in Him. That's right. That's right. And that's why, like, when you're talking, I just feel so much joy in my heart because I'm just like, this is true, and I believe this. And that is the abundant joy and abundant life of the eternal life that we are currently drinking from. And just because we don't get to have all of it yet doesn't mean that we don't get to have any of it. Exactly. And man. Okay. So what, what'd you pick for number three? So number three, I went with, uh, first Peter chapter one. And this is where I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> Verses three to nine. Okay. Yeah. But that's a long <laughs> sentence. It's a long sentence. Exactly. Thank you. You're so kind. So there's a few things that I would drop. And again, I took it literally. I'm stuck on a desert island, remember? So, you know, I, I need some encouragement in particular ways. Yeah. So praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So 
great. I'm reminded that even though I'm hopelessly stranded on an island, I have living hope uh, through the resurrection of Christ um, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So, you know, come month two, like all of my clothes and shoes are wearing out, so I need to be reminded that I have an imperishable inheritance in Christ that's kept in heaven for me. And this is the main part. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. In fact, we can just stop there. And we'll stop where he's talking about faith. So uh, he says faith is... Uh, oh, actually, no, let's keep reading. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So that's that main verse, verse 7 there, that our faith is more precious than gold, and like gold, it is refined by fire. And when our faith is refined by fire, it results in the praise, glory, and honor. So I think, you know, if I'm standing on a desert island, I'm suffering, I'm going through trial, and that trial is refining of my faith. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about faith lately and how is it that we actually experience the growth of faith. And I think, uh, and David Campbell has helped me to understand this. I think a lot of times when we, when we think about increasing our faith, we, we think of it in terms of increasing the size of our faith. If I want to go, you know, from a mustard seed to something bigger as opposed to thinking of it as bettering the quality of our faith. And bettering the quality of our faith is the way that the New Testament talks about it. Obviously, here in this this Peter passage, our the quality of gold is increased, it's refined by fire, in the same way the quality of our faith is increased as it's put to work in impossible, challenging situations. So yeah, well, this got me thinking about uh, that famous passage where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, increase our faith. And Jesus doesn't say, well, here's how you get bigger faith. He just answers and says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you'd say to that mulberry tree, be uprooted and, and move from here to there or, or throw them to the sea or whatever. And that always perplexed me because it's like, that's not an answer. That You didn't tell me how to increase my faith. You just told me to use the faith that I... I have. And then I realized that the way we increase our faith is just by being obedient. What has God already told us to do? Because most Christians are stopping short of what God's already said, and they're waiting for another word about what to do, but they haven't done the last thing that God said. And so putting our faith to work in, in doing what God commands us, either in Scripture or maybe even through a prophetic word, that's how our faith grows. Uh, it grows in its use. It grows in obedience. In fact, faith is obedience. As Paul opens and closes the book of Romans with that, that same life purpose, to bring about the obedience of faith, or uh, the obedience that is faith, your translation might say, um, amongst the Gentiles. So I've been thinking a lot about that. On my desert island, I'm thinking, my faith is growing right now as I'm trusting God in this trial. Wow. And then it, your point continues so perfectly with exactly what the text says, which is that faith is refined um, through testing and suffering. 
you know, the crucibles for silver, the furnaces for gold, the Lord test hearts, all these passages that we read as, ch as children and then they become near and dear to us when we go through um, these trials. Have you, Jake, had, excuse me, or been through a season of um, testing or suffering in your faith? And if so, would you feel comfortable sharing it? Yeah, I mean, several. Um, and uh, sometimes those are things that come upon you. You know, for me, it was uh, the kind of the breakdown of my, my family of origin, but the divorce of my parents. Mm. Um, several years back, that happened to me as uh, uh, as an adult. So it was very interesting to process that. Um, and that was very trying for my faith. Not not in the sense that it made me question God, but it made me depend upon God in a way that I'd not yet been forced to depend upon him. Mm -hmm. um, but on top of that, honestly, what I try to model as a leader is to put myself in circumstances that test my faith, that try my faith. Not in the sense that I'm fleecing God or something like that, but in the sense that I just, I always want to have vision for the future that is beyond my capacity to achieve and try to lead our church into that as well. Because I think when we're putting ourselves in that position, we inevitably will find ourselves in very uncomfortable circumstances where we're just so dependent upon God to yeah. do a miracle or come through in some way. And I think that's that obedience thing. A lot of people are waiting for God to increase their faith before they act. And I think the increase is in the acting. Man, that is so good. That is such good teaching. And I just want to encourage anyone who's watching this, if you're watching this in five years, if you're, I don't know when you're watching this, but I just think that that is a word for you today. <clears throat> that faith without works is dead, James said. And that faith brings about obedience. And like some translations say that Jake quoted, faith is obedience. And I just want to encourage anyone who's watching um, with what he just said, that uh, the faith that is in you, the genuineness of your faith will come about in obedience to Christ. And I would encourage you in any way you've been disobedient to be obedient to Christ and to rejoice in the blessing that follows that. We're always so salvific in Protestantism that we forget that once we have our salvation, all of the blessings are still on the line. You can be saved and live a literal cursed life according to the Old and New Testament. And obedience to Christ and trust in Christ are so deeply rewarding. And um, man, this is this was really good. And I don't throw words around like that. And I don't just say that to every person I have on. Thank you so much, Jake, for your diligent study that has led you to be able to share these things with us. I really appreciate what you said. Thank you so much for being on here with me. Landon, it's an absolute pleasure, man. So love what you guys are doing. Love this creative idea. It's brilliant. Love keeping up with you on Instagram and seeing all the things that you're doing, man. It'd be a joy to be with you again in March. Theos. Absolutely. Can't wait to be there. Can't wait to be there. Her whole career thing. I encourage you to check out the Good Theology channel. It's linked below. If you live in the LA area, I don't do church recommendations very often, but I happen to be personal friends with someone who does attend Jake's church and has told me repeatedly that the teaching is excellent and that the pastoring is wonderful. And so those are not things that I just throw around randomly, but I'd encourage you to check out C3 Church in LA. Or if you're in LA, 
and you live in that part of LA because I know people in LA are addicted to acting like everything is far away from everything else. And so they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, and it, it just adds yeah. an easy, uh, an easy um, place to find us to see through losangeles.com is our church website. So absolutely. Thank you for joining me today. And everybody, God bless you. And I would love to hear in the comments uh, which Bible verses you would take to a desert island. And uh, we'll see you guys here next time. Thank you. Thank you all.